0: The race is on, and it was back to business as usual in Barcelona with Lewis Hamilton taking his fourth win of the season, with Max Verstappen again there to break up the Mercedes dominance in second place ahead of Valtteri Bottas. But with no tar shenanigans to put a spanner in the works, this was a show of just how dominant those three are, with everyone else finishing a lap down. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me as usual are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Uh, well, Mark, your your remote covering this weekend. I'm I'm here on the. Uh, on site, it looks like you're kind of being held hostage in that room. You've got a bare wall in the background. It's it's a very uh, it's a very spartan uh, spartan corner of the room you've chosen.
1: It's um it it's the spare room. It's where I've got all my books and things. Um, I could I could show you those, but um, yeah, it probably doesn't work on a podcast.
0: Yeah, fundamentally, a a, a visual thing. You should go to you should do some product placement backdrops like Scott Mitchell has got. With his uh, with his sim racing seat in the background, perhaps you could uh, just next time you do one, just park your old TVR Tuscan Challenge car in the background, you can you can copy what uh, what Scott's doing. Have you have you been sim racing recently, Scott? He asks him, knowing
2: full well you have not very successfully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had my uh, Formula Two style series uh, last Tuesday, uh, GPVWC Super Cup round at uh, Monza, and I'm now I've now started testing for. The resumption of my British Touring Car Championship inspired uh, VMO series which resumes at Snetterton on Tuesday night. So yeah, nice little mix of uh, jumping between F2 style machinery and a, a Mercedes uh, A-class touring car.
0: Would it be fair to call your uh, your single-seater exploits Andre de cheser Oh no, Andre de Cheser-esque. I should have thought about that <laughs> before and- I
2: attended. Andre de esque Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, no, it's n- they're nowhere near that successful. <laughs> my uh, my um, my sim racing career is more Esteban Gutierrez. There are flashes of genuine pace there, but invariably I find myself massively under delivering and often being my own worst enemy.
0: Well, there we go. That's uh, there's worse drivers to compare yourself to. So uh, we'll take that. Well, shall we actually get on with some real world racing? This is our sixth race in seven weekends, so it's been coming thick and fast. Mercedes win again, so uh, that's five wins out of six for Mercedes after the the brief aberration of uh, the second Silverstone race. So, Mark Lewis Hamilton, he led every lap from pole position. Only denied fastest lap by Valtteri Bottas taking that late pit stop and the kind of free gift, should we say, bonus point because he had the trap position to to drop into. I actually thought this was a, a classic case of the extraordinary being made to look quite boring, and this was perhaps Hamilton's best win of the season.
1: Yeah, I'd agree, and um, I think Lewis probably would be too. Would would agree with you too. Um, it was uh, just one of those d- demonstrations where he just hit everything perfectly and reduced everything else to incidental. And once, so the initial sort of 10 laps was just about uh, sort of that cycle and pursuit sort of pre-race while everybody worked out where they had to be with the tyres. And then he just let rip and that was it, goodbye. And uh, any hopes that Red Bull Harder may be winning this on Tire usage in the way that they had at, um, at the previous race uh, disappeared within that one lap. I think it was lap eleven when he he, he pulled the plug and um, pulled the pin rather. And yeah, that that was it. And really, this would it would stand in comparison to any of the greats. Um, or, you know, reducing the opposition to um, incidentals like you know, it's a sort of performance you used to see in the old days. Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart and people like that where everything is just absolutely nailed and perfect and he he, he said he got himself into such a rhythm he hadn't even realised was the last lap when they showed the flag.
2: Yeah Lewis described it as um, being in a zone that he couldn't really remember the last time he was in like that and when we spoke to him a little bit later uh, it's always really interesting because good or bad Lewis's mood invariably shifts from the post-race stuff to when he's sort of talking to us a couple of hours later is always a bit more sort of um considered I think is probably the fairest way to, to to put it and uh he was asked um if it was a bit like um those sort of like out-of-body experience moments where you're not really in control and he was he he was quite um he was quite modest and reserved in that regard he, he said it wasn't quite like that it was more just it was more just. Um, yeah, just putting everything together in such a way that it's just incredibly, incredibly satisfying, I think, as a driver. he's you know How often do we hear Lewis talk about trying to do the perfect lap? And the big motivation is you know that a, a lap probably can never be perfect. So you're always trying to get close. But as races go, it's very, very difficult to see how he could have done a better job there. So I'm looking forward to reading about how Ed denies him a perfect 10 in his driver ratings. Or a, perf- yeah, or a perfect 100, based on how uh, you now do your driver ratings, Ed.
0: No, the driver ratings are still out of 10. It's just you haven't been introduced to decimal points, uh, evidently. You haven't quite learned what, what they are yet. But, yeah, Hamilton, well, I asked him in the press conference after that, that it was kind of, it wasn't one of these swashbuckling wins, but it was just one of those ones that on the outside looks all fairly run-of-the-mill, but actually, for the for the driver, it's it was a, a really good drive, and he sort of seemed to warm to that topic, and... He sort of said, oh, these guys next to me will get what it's about. And it it sort of struck me as the, uh, like the professional's drive, if you see what I mean, as in it was one that the fellow drivers would really get how good it was. It's one of those ones where just there was that pace on tap when he needed it, everything was in control. And, you know, what you were saying, Mark, about, kind of one of those dominant wins in the old days. This would have been Jim Clark 80 seconds up the road or something uh, ridiculous in, in, in the 60s. But modern F1 doesn't really work like that. But still, it was a big chunk up the road. It was 20-something seconds over for I think, in the end, wasn't it? And just being able to to go despite those tyre worries. But it, it was strange because I think Mercedes were legitimately a little bit concerned, weren't they, Mark, about uh, the tyres? obviously it was very, very hot, we did have the the three hardest available tire compounds, which was obviously a little bit more uh, safe, shall we say? But there were legitimate concerns and, shall we say, hopes for the sake of the race that it might be a a bit of a tire conserving race or a tire challenging race. I should say.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, the the Mercedes and Red Bull pace on the long runs of Friday very very closely matched, and basically on the, on, the, on this sort of circuit. The, the challenge is how hard a pace can you run before inducing thermal deg in the tyres because that's going to ruin your strategy. As soon as you get into that, it gets into a sort of runaway state. And you might as well just come in and put a fresh set on. But if you do that too early, you've ruined your strategy. But how, how well the car uses the tyres determines how quickly you can go before nudging into that l- limitation. It's a very different limitation of that that they faced at Silverstone, but nonetheless, it was a tyre tyre usage limitation, and there wasn't really a clear cut answer of whether the, the the very high temperatures and Barcelona tracks demands, despite it being uh, you know a, a harder range of compounds than we had last week, might not trigger a tyre usage uh, deficit to Red Bull again, um, and you you can't really get a full picture in the limited run you have on a Friday afternoon. So you did about 10 laps. I think they each did about 10 laps um, on, on the, each of the compounds. And you could see it was very, very close, but you don't know how long you could go and whether that was a, an accurate summary of, uh, of how hard they could push. So those questions were unanswered as it went in. And everybody was playing it very cautiously. And that's what those first 10 laps were about. And no one had an answer until Lewis decided, OK, I think it's safe now to sort of let rip and let's see if he can come with me. And he couldn't. And that was it, really. And so those questions were answered from that moment.
0: Yeah, it was quite a dramatic turning point, that, because I was looking, I always look for where the gaps are in the, in the traffic. And you th- I was thinking, it's going to take a while to actually get a, a space. And then suddenly there was this step change in the pace, which, which changed it dramatically. And Hamilton was quite quickly able to pull a pit stop gap over the uh, the racing points with uh, Lance Stroll there at the, at the head of that. Uh, we'll probably come back to Red Bull in a minute, but Scott, we should talk about the other Mercedes driver. If you cast your mind back six weeks ago, something like that, to the season opening Austrian Grand Prix, we had Valtteri Bottas 3.0, as he was being called, winning from pole, full of the joys of life. Could you see any of that energy after a race in which he finished third with again Verstappen splitting the Mercs?
2: Uh, no, completely the opposite. It's the lowest I've seen Valtteri all season. It's actually similar almost to what he was like, if you remember, towards the end of 2018, when he'd been basically pummeled by Lewis towards the end of the year. Didn't he end the season with a run of like five fifth-place finishes or something very, very mediocre? Yeah, it was, it was
0: It was one of those ones. And I just always remember in Abu Dhabi, just being really, really just dejected and empty. I I, I really, I mean, I, was, I didn't... Uh, Participate in his press conference, but I hope he wasn't quite that bad. But it does sound like he's uh, he's slumped a bit. It's
2: it's I it's the lowest I remember seeing him for a while, which is concerning. Obviously, we're only well, we don't know how far into the season we are, but we're maybe only a third of the way into the season, and he's already talking like someone who is not given up on the title fight. Obviously, but I think he realizes just how how long his odds are now. Um, He was basically he's not hiding. I can say that for him. He said that the difference today was the fact that he got a bad start. He said he doesn't think there was anything like wrong that caused him to make a bad start. He just didn't nail it when he needed to. Um and because you need like a second a second and a half on the car in front to overtake around Barcelona and current cars, that was just it then for him. He was he was locked into um damage limitation and that was unfortunately never going to involve passing Verstappen I don't think so he's now just in a he says he'll shake it off I'm sure within 24 hours or 48 hours he'll um, he'll sort of revitalize himself look ahead to Spa and be back get back on the horse so to speak but right now I think he's uh, he's hurting and as he said to us post-race he just wants to be anywhere but Barcelona at the moment it's just got to be really hard
0: work to be up against a guy like Lewis Hamilton. know, Mark was talking about him as you know, in, in terms of the great drivers. Obviously, he is one of the greats, but sometimes we sort of forget what that means. That means he is up there with Jim Clark or Jackie Stewart, Nicky Lauda, Alan Prost-Edden all these people, and, and there's no kind of disgrace in being second best to them, but it must just be so difficult for someone like Bottas, mustn't it, Mark, that every time he digs deep... Hamilton digs deeper and there's days when if if Lewis is just a little bit off where Valtteri's there and then you have like qualifying sessions like in Spain where Bottas was up after the first two sectors, when it all kind of got away from him the long turn 12 right-hander seems to be his problem compared to Hamilton can carry the same speed but just all these things just just there's always just something that doesn't quite come together
1: yeah it must be deeply frustrating because as you say there are times when The numbers will tell you he's getting close. You'll be looking at that as, and and he'll he'll have been working on himself and he's been applying himself to how he can improve and he'll have felt that he's improving and then you'll see the numbers and you think, yeah, yeah, I'm making some progress, making some progress. And then all of a sudden, Lewis will go to a a different level again. And it's happened so many times and Valtteri is very good at dusting himself down and, and, and coming back and trying again. But you know there's only so long you can do that really with how many how many seasons can you do that before you're mentally accepting that you you're never going to do it um, against that guy So yeah, I'd, I'd be a little bit concerned about um, Bottas' sort of uh, sustaining a level of uh, of uh, performance that he that he has done um in the last sort of year or so i i'd i'd really wonder if he can sustain even at that level
2: my my um my concern for bottas is more that i don't have sympathy for him from a sporting point of view because this is meant to be the best of the best it's elite sport ultimately he just isn't quite good enough is he to go up against as you've both just discuss someone who is a a, a true great so that's not that's not necessarily um it's not like a black mark against Bottas or anything like that it's just that's just the way it goes in sport like this where I have sympathy for him is absolutely on a human level which you've both just touched on there the mental anguish that you must go through and the way I see it is um Valtteri says that the thing that motivates him gets him out of bed every morning makes him turn to the next race is this pursuit of a lifelong dream. He's wanted this since he was a kid. Since he was a child, he's dreamed of being Formula 1 world champion. He's here every single year. Every single season he starts with Mercedes. He thinks, this is my year. I can do this. And he came into this season more motivated than ever, happier than ever, seemed more confident than ever. Started this season again with a win. Every single qualifying session he's taking Lewis pretty much to the wire. He's pushing Lewis to a new level almost on uh, in qualifying. And then yet, yeah, pretty much almost without exception Sundays it doesn't happen and to see we on a weekly basis as we have at the moment the disintegration of someone's lifelong dream and everything that they're working towards is really hard on a personal level because I, I can't not empathize with that situation I might not think sports sport in a from a sporting perspective that there's anything you can do about it because it's just not good enough but on a personal level I can I, cannot, I I can only sympathize with him.
1: Yeah, I think you touch on something in- interesting there, Scott, um, in terms of the timing of the races, just how little uh, recovery time you have from mental anguish. So you talk about recovery time, normally you think in terms of um, physical, but six races and seven weekends, and for um, five of them, you've been soundly beaten. Um how do you how do you recover from that in just a few days? Because you know, be you be leaving one one race, you'll maybe have a couple of days and then you you're back into the programme of the next race. That's probably not long enough to be to be properly resolving these questions in your head. And I think it's very, very easy to underestimate
0: how tough it is because yeah, he's a driver who's he's being paid to drive, one of the best cars in Formula One. He's getting wins here and there, he's earning millions. All great. You know, he's not fighting for survival or doing sort of important work, shall we say. But I I think people can underestimate in elite sport how tough that it it is because the the standard you're being compared to is so ridiculous. He's one of the best, let's say, half a dozen in the world. But that's failure at this stage in terms of what his ambition is. And you've got to be not the sixth best in the world or the fifth best. You've got to be the best best in the world. And it's just so, so difficult. And I think it's very easy for people to – to to kind of talk down what what Bottas does. But I'd also like to flip it on its head and say, we said how good Hamilton was. Bottas shows what's possible if you're not quite at the top of your game and absolutely getting the maximum out of that car. He finished behind a Red Bull. You know, this does happen. So it also gives you a context for just how strong uh, Hamilton's driving as well. But it
2: must must just feel battered mentally, uh, Valtteri. It's, um, it's the trade-off that he's made with ultimately a career-changing move to Mercedes that has turned him into a Grand Prix winner, which deservedly, I think he is a driver of a calibre that absolutely deserves to be in the record books as a multiple Grand Prix winner. But that opportunity has, is a double-edged sword because it means that he is going to be judged against the worst possible person of the last, well, probably 14 years Maybe with the exception of Fernando Alonso, I did feel some sympathy with uh, Soffel Van Dorn a couple of years back. Um, but this just that is just part of of the game, and, and and credit to Valtteri because he does always manage to pick himself up. But I think he's just being he, he at any point over the last three three seasons, maybe maybe, maybe um, this year as well. He could be. He could absolutely be looking at his Jensen Button 2009 moment, or any of those. Or Jacques Villeneuve 97. You know, when a very good driver, if not an all-time great, has everything aligned and they have the car to go out, and that's their one shot. And then, if they can take it or not, determines whether or not they're a world champion. And Bottas could have had that at any point since 2017. But the guy on the other side of the garage just is never going to give him that opportunity, is he?
0: And just to make matters worse, the guy leading the nearest challenger team is Max Verstappen, which just makes it even harder because you know Alex Albon. Obviously, we'll get onto him later. His race wasn't representative, should we say, because of the strategy. But it shows that again, Max is a driver getting the absolute most from the Red Bull and able to get it in between. But but Bottas must have been frustrated because he was asked about the uh, the start and he didn't make a great start. But he thought, oh, okay, I haven't made a great start. Well try and sort of pull in behind Lewis or whatever or just uh just try and consolidate position because it's quite a long run down to the first corner but he thought, oh no to my left there's Verstappen I can't go there oh I'll, I'll cover the right oh there's a racing point there because Stroll's got a good start and then he's just sort of sat there in the middle thinking oh and then suddenly he's fourth and although he got through Stroll with a DRS pass pretty quickly I think it took him about four laps something like that it, that basically defined his race and he wasn't able to uh to attack so yeah really really tough job for uh Valtteri Bottas but yeah he's he's in that David Coulthard Gerhard Berger territory which is no bad thing and I think we tend to with these sorts of drivers at the time they perhaps get derided a little bit unfairly but normally as as time passes they're they're reflected on as for what they are very 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 good Grand Prix drivers who are sometimes made to look a bit mediocre by uh, by greatness uh, we should briefly mention Red Bull Mark I guess we shouldn't really be surprised, should we, that they're back to being second best again? Because Silverstone 2 was not a normal set of circumstances, was it? We knew that was a bit of an outlier. So that this is the real picture, isn't it, for Red Bull and Verstappen?
1: Yeah, and I mean, Max said as much after winning at Silverstone, he said, when we're going back to races where um, you know, we're not going to get this specific issue, I don't think the competitive picture will have changed. And it, it hasn't really. And it's... It's a closer car to the Mercedes in on a Sunday than it is on a Saturday, but it's still not that close, really. Um, there will be certain, certain situations, like we had at Silverstone, where it's close enough to be able to take advantage of a Mercedes problem, but usually the Mercedes will have enough in hand. Verstappen's
2: been the, well, not the funny man, but he's been a source of quite nice, light relief, hasn't he, over the last few races, over the radio, with a few quips to to his race engineer and to the team in general. But um, I think we saw the other side of it today. I I don't remember the last time that Max sort of lost his cool and obviously it didn't turn into a spiral in race performance, but he did did have a little moment when uh, I think him and Red Bull just sort of got their wires crossed on exactly what they were working towards. And Max was basically critical of the fact that he felt the team was focusing too much on Hamilton when he would basically accepted that Hamilton was long gone and the battle was basically just to make sure they did their race as quickly as possible he didn't want them to tie themselves in knots I don't think uh by by focusing on the wrong thing and in the end I think his engineer ended up telling him just get your head down basically shut up and get on with it um and Max said afterwards that it was sort of not a big deal and, and it turned out not to be because he obviously did a very good job to to do everything he needed to to, to make sure he did split the Mercedes in the end. But I, just, I, I thought it was quite interesting because in general, Max has accepted his position, uh, which is basically third best and sniping for one of the Mercedes if they trip up. But I did wonder if this was a sign of him getting a bit more frustrated because there was a feeling that there might be more on the cards this weekend and they were so good in Friday practice. I just wonder if once they settled into the rhythm of the race early on and Lewis just, yeah, had the pace to, to turn it up and ease away from Max when he needed to rebel was struggling a bit more with their tires. I do wonder if there was a little bit of frustration crept in for Max because yeah, he'd hoped that there'd be a little bit more. And then actually when it came to it, it was just more of what we saw before Silverstone too, which was just being quick but just just gradually slipping back.
0: And you know, I get the impression that that radio message as well was about trying to focus on them doing their job, and that's exactly what he was asking for, because there comes a point where you have to realise whether you can attack or not, and Max is quite good at this. He realised at Silverstone in that first stint that that was the time to press on and push and create problems, whereas he realised in this race, actually, do you know what? We need to understand what we're doing here. We need to cover... Bottas, you know, we're not going to be able to do anything about Hamilton, and that—that's always a good sign. And you do see this again. This is the Verstappen and Hamilton compared to Bottas sort of comparison. We also saw Hamilton in that race saying, "No, you're not going to put me onto soft. I'm going on mediums." So he got he got sent around for another lap, and he got put onto mediums, which of course was the right tyre. Whereas, of course has his chances of, uh, of chasing down Verstappen were probably compromised a bit by taking softs for the last stint, but you know he wasn't there calling the uh, calling the shots and saying no, don't don't do that. So uh, again, you know you've got to be able to do it all to to be uh, one of the absolute very 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 best. Uh, Mark, let's talk about Racing Point. I am banning with immediate effect any talk of illegally designed brake ducts. We talked about that plenty. Still rumbling along in the background, but. This, I would say, seemed to be the first weekend this year where Racing Point came away with what the car was capable of. Fourth for Lance Stroll, fifth for Sergio Perez. So do you think this is the car's real level?
1: Yeah, I think it it probably is. Um, I think if you got a superstar driver in there, it would be nudging up with the Red Bull probably. But um, for where it's at, they're they're maximising the results. And yeah, they had a, a good, clean race, a good, clean weekend, really. And um, yeah, that's that's about right. It's it's out of re- it's just k- keeping itself out of reach of uh, the McLarens and uh, the, you know, the Ferraris, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, they delivered on their on their potential.
0: Yeah, it was. I mean, they they basically fourth fifth throughout the race uh, in real terms, weren't they? I mean, Lance Stroll had a little bit of work to do because he did the two stopper. Perez did the the one stopper. Perez had the added complication of that blue flag penalty uh, for not respecting the the blue flags when Hamilton was lapping him. I must admit, the context in which he got that penalty was Michael Massey's been kicking off at the drivers to tell them to respond more quickly to to blue flags. So I think you you can only if you get three you you are in trouble. But I must admit I, I had a look at the onboard of that with Perez and with Hamilton and and Hamilton didn't complain. Perez seemed to get out of the way he, he had to really back off to to do it on the run to turn ten. So I thought it was a little bit of a of a harsh one actually, but at the same time, if the race director has been saying there's going to be a crackdown, then you should probably be on the lookout for it. Obviously, Perez was trying to avoid losing time, but it, it worked out for him in the end because although Carlos Sainz was uh, was pushing on Sebastian Vettel, had sort of held everyone back long enough that it didn't actually affect Racing Point's overall result, even though it's uh, it meant that Perez ended up finishing fifth rather than fourth, although they'd only swapped because of the strategy. And I, I'm actually going to say something positive about Lance Stroll, because that's a good weekend from him. Fourth place, yeah, Perez's is penalty help, but Stroll was sort of strategied out, out to behind him. So, yeah, this, this is what Stroll needs to be doing.
2: And full credit to Stroll for that first lap, or rather the first uh, 10, 15 seconds or so. We, we've seen this before, we've seen it back in the Williams days when he had uh, a bit of a shed to, to drive he's just really um, feisty on opening laps and sometimes that's a result of taking liberties and maybe putting his car where it's a bit dangerous uh, to go and he takes a bit of a risk but you know where there's where there's risk there there can often be reward and I think you know he, he enjoyed that little spell the beginning running in third but just to go back to the point about what the the job the team's done in executing. That this was much more like Team Silverstone of old, wasn't it? Before they got a bit they've been a bit wasteful this year. And back in the Force India days, they were quite literally the complete opposite. But this is um I, I did a brief dig back through the uh the history books and I believe this is the Silverstone team's best collective result since Spain three years ago. But when that happened, they were fourth and fifth again but when that happened i think there was uh, bottas retired and i think verstappen retired as well so that was a very much an inherited fourth and fifth whereas as you've said i think this is exactly where the racing point is on its on a weekend where there are no major problems i think they are clear of the midfield battle i think they did make life a little bit hard for themselves here but they are um they are arguably the second second fastest team over one lap or they could be second fastest over one lap they're certainly giving Verstappen a, a run for his money in qualifying and then in the race they fall behind Verstappen but you know if you're that team you're taking fourths and fifths all season long aren't you?
1: Yeah and I think the um, the pace in qualifying is flattered by the difference in the engine um, and the, the, the two when you compare it to the Red Bull and um, the, the the you see the the actual pace of the the car is more, um, more realistic on on race day. It, it more realistically, it's it's just a little bit of drift of the Red Bull, um, which I don't think it's controversial to say is probably being driven a, a few tens faster just, but not by the ability of its driver. Um, so yeah, that's that's about where it's at. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this
0: earlier because I was looking at the gap. Point one nine zero was the gap from Verstappen to Perez in qualifying, and, and Perez is a driver I really rate, but. Saturday afternoons are not his not his uh, absolute zenith, are they? He's uh, really strong on race day, so yeah, it'd be interesting to see what would happen if you had a Verstappen esque driver. Not many of them around in the uh, in in the Racing Point, and maybe you know if they have Sadravat in it next year, you know he, he may he may be struggling now, but we know he's got uh, a good lap time in him, which actually is a good chance to talk about Ferrari, Mark. Uh, another difficult weekend. It was back onto that kind of periphery of Q three. It was a sort of Q three marginal. Vettel missed out. Leclerc managed to dip in. Vettel got that seventh place, uh, ran 11th early on, then pulled off the one-stop strategy, which gained him, I think, three places. And then he picked up the other one because Leclerc retired. bit of aggro on the radio. He didn't seem to know exactly what strategic plan he was on, being told to push and then being told to manage. So he wasn't very happy with the pit wall. So it's funny. It's even in this actually quite decent race for Vettel, and even the gap in qualifying wasn't too bad. It wasn't great, but it was only only a couple of tenths, wasn't it? Even on what should be quite a good day, they managed to find some underlying aggravation and irritation, just to underline that this relationship's still not going well.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we're probably looking for it more, and the the, the people that are choosing the broadcasts, uh, the radio broadcasts on form are probably more tuned into it. But he's never actually. Um it, it it's never been sweetness and light with with these um, these team around them in in terms of the the operating operating of the car during a Grand Prix weekend. Even even when it was going well, you know, you'd quite often hear him saying, you know, don't don't move. The-. I remember Spa last year saying, don't move the car like that. You're going to damage the floor. This was in the middle of a qualifying session or. Um, questioning strategies, and but it's 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 definitely taken on a, a surlier edge this year. You know, he's, as he's he's clearly um, taken taken a really how would you put it? I don't think surly is the right word, but he's definitely not taken it well. That he hasn't been even offered the courtesy of a negotiation for. A drive there next year. He's just been told, you know, you're out. And so this, this is, this is ine- inevitably that, that, that edge is there, that, that little niggle is there, but it, it, that the dynamic between him and his engineer or him and the, the crew around him has always been a little bit as if he need, he feels the need to be in charge because he doesn't entirely trust them to do the right thing. And you didn't used to hear that on these Red Bull days. It was quite a conventional relationship between an engineer and driver there. It was a very good one, in fact. So I I think it's partly reflective of just how worn down he is by having to, feeling he's got to be on top of that at all times.
2: I think it's uh, another good example here of what Ferrari is going to lose when Seb goes. I think uh, we know that we know that he's just lacking a couple of attempts to Leclerc at the moment. It doesn't really look like it's the sort of Seb when he puts in those performances like Canada last year in qualifying where you're just like, oh, on his day, he's just capable of stuff that very few people, even Hamilton, struggle to to match. I don't really think we're going to see that in qualifying this year, um, even in the context of that Ferrari. But what we are going to see, and we saw it in Hungary with the call about uh, what compound attire to go to during the race. We've sort of seen it here as well. Just that experienced driver, that sort of level head, that ability to read the way a race is going, and just basically not accept what he can quite clearly see, even in the heat of battle, to be a mistake from the team. And I think Ferrari would have worse... uh, Yes, Seb has contributed to Ferrari not having great results this season, like his first lap spin at Silverstone. But I think he's also salvaged very good results for them. I think a better result in Hungary and a better result here. So it's quite nice to see. I, 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 I've I followed a few of his weekends and sessions quite closely as it happens. And it has been really painful at times to sort of just hear the, the difficulty. Um, a little bit like with Bottas almost, but just obviously in a very different context. So actually to see him pull something like this, you don't, as we've we've discussed plenty of times already, how hard it is to overtake at Barcelona. Strategy is pretty much the only thing that can transform your race here, isn't it? And full credit to Seb for having a little bit of ingenuity, but having to put up with some Ferrari shambles in the process, because I think, as he said, if he'd been told three laps earlier, he'd have probably been able to make life a bit easier for himself, because I think he'd been pushing a little bit, thinking he was coming towards the end of his stint, and then all of a sudden he was being asked to manage the tyres he'd just taken some life out of to the very end
1: <laughs> yeah there was a set of softs as well that's the he did, did a remarkable stint length on a set of softs there's no criticism
0: as far as I'm concerned of, of Vettel for for kicking off a bit about them we just talked about Verstappen and Hamilton doing it you know that that's the level of driver Vettel is capable of being and I, I think overall you'd have to say that was a, a good uh, a good race performance Leclerc obviously was aiming to do a similar kind of thing wasn't he? he stopped uh, about the same time he had that that spin at the chicane mark. Uh, can you just explain what we know about what actually happened there, and what was cause, what was effect? Was there a mistake involved, or was it just... No, I
1: don't think it was a mistake in terms of driving error. He um, hit a he hit the curb quite hard, but not you know not outrageously hard, just as hard as you you would when you were pushing on any other lap. Um, um, but it, it dislodged something electrical, which cut the power completely mid corner, which caused the spin. Um, he then couldn't get the thing restarted. Took off his under his belts, give it one last try to get it going on the on the ears. Managed to do it, and then so had to trail back without his belts. And then they they couldn't actually get to the bottom of uh, what the electrical problem was, so they just retired it at that point.
0: Yeah, and and his race would have been interesting because he was yeah, pretty much on the same strategy as Vettel, but he was just ahead. I think he was behind Norris at the time. Uh Vettel was a couple behind. I think there was a caveat in there. So it could have been another interesting Leclerc one stop as well. And actually, so Ferrari with reliability could have come away with a, a fairly handy double points finish, but that's not that's not what they're there for, is it? So yeah, this is uh yeah, difficult times continuing for, for Ferrari. Scott, before we get on to uh, some of the others, we should talk about Alex Albin, who finished 8th in this race. He ended up on a very odd strategy in the end. Can you just explain what happened to him and, and how he contrived to end up 8th in the race when he probably should have been 6th at worst?
2: Yeah, so first of all, um, it's important to clear up a little bit of a misconception about his weekend because there's a, there's a few people I've seen online uh, on the magical world that is Twitter especially. Um, Seem to be basically saying, oh, Albon needs to qualify better and then, you know, he'll actually have half a chance. Well, th- th- that wasn't the problem here. Uh, the deficit, the pace deficit to Verstappen was bad, but actually qualifying sixth was, that was fine. The first three rows is where he needs to be. We've already talked about how quick the racing point is over one lap. I honestly think Verstappen is the reason the Red Bulls out qualifying the racing point more often than it isn't. So being sixth, I think is fine. He would have actually come out of turn one fifth but because of Bottas's bad start and getting blocked by Stroll, then Bottas backed out of it. And then Albon had to come off the throttle as well, which allowed Perez to steal back around the outside. And that condemned him to a first stint where he was behind the racing points. Again, not going a second, second and a half lap faster than those cars. He's not going to overtake them. So it looked like he was going into management mode a bit. He was struggling with his tyres, but he's in dirty air, so not, to bl- not really surprising. And then... And then just quite a baffling decision from Red Bull, really like Albon didn't have two sets of new mediums to to go to. So the conventional softs, medium, medium wasn't really an option for him. But even though he had to switch to the hards, you can see all the teams have got their fancy tech that allows them to work out sort of where everybody is relative and on the track and where like a pit stop would put you back out. So the hard tyres, which everybody hated on Friday, and actually Albon was the only driver to go to the hard tyres during the race. Red Bull opts to put him on the hards at a time when pitting him is going to bring him out in traffic. And one of the cars that's going to bring him behind is Esteban Ocon in the Renault, a car that uh, that is quite good on its tyres and was on mediums, not a huge way into their stint. And he was also... Within DRS range of the car in front, so Ocon also had DRS in a straight line. So where's Albon going to obviously regain that track position? You can argue he could have could have done a better job. Maybe if Verstappen had been in that situation, he would have been able to find a way past. But it made Albon's life immeasurably more difficult. It meant that he all of a sudden he's on the hard and presumably is going for a two is going for a one stop. But even if he's going for a two stop, early on in a very long stint, he's chewing up the tyres. So it just starts to go, it just starts to unravel. He loses trap position to Sines, uh, not in the original pit stop, but because basically Signs rejoins, is on a faster set of tyres, is on fresh tyres and is able to mug Albon in, uh, using the DRS. Um, and then from there, it's basically a job just to try and get back into seventh, let alone build on where he started. So he ends up taking that second stop he couldn't quite catch Vettel in the end on Vettel's aged softs and Albon just cut a really a really baffled figure post-race just saying he doesn't know what more he can do to manage the tyres the team said oh I don't really think he was stitched up on strategy it was more just because he was using up the tyres loads loads more but Christian Horner said that his big problem one of the big problems was that he was in dirty air and that was eating up the tyres well you know to to that specific point from Horner and also to what Alex was saying about I don't know what more I can do to manage them that situation is surely helped massively if you're not needlessly in dirty air and put in dirty air because of a baffling strategy
0: yeah I d- it, it was a puzzling <laughs> a puzzling move and I think it's the last thing that a driver really needs is an album situation to have this sort of thing uh happening in races obviously there's reasons why they did it but yeah it made it very difficult for them and yeah a race where he could have been He'd have either been in a, with a normal race, and this might have needed another set of mediums. But he'd have either been fourth, fifth, or sixth. Really, those are probably the three possibilities he could have got amongst the the racing points.
2: Well, the problem is that I should stress: I'm not saying that Albon's driving brilliantly. He's obviously not at the level that he wants to be or needs to be, especially in the Red Bull. But he's also not as bad as this race made him look. You know, he got lapped by Verstappen, and a bunch of people have jumped on that. I don't think he'd have got that by Verstappen had that strategy not been played out the way it was. So I just I do have a bit of sympathy for him because there, there's a lot of things that do need to be improved, but there also were a few things that were better this weekend. Um, there's, there's no point in going into masses of detail on in this podcast. I, I spoke to Alban at length uh, ahead of the weekend, and there'll be a piece on the races website that interview with him. So I'll go into more detail there, but. You know, there were genuine signs around sort of the way he conducted himself in preparation, the way he was working with his race engineer, and a few sort of bits and bobs throughout practice qualifying and even the race itself. So I, I, it's not as bad as it looks. I'm not just making excuses for him. There is still a lot that he needs to do better. It just frustrates me in this sort of situation because he's a driver under pressure. He's a driver under fire. And when you have that kind of situation play out, I just think it makes him look worse than than he is.
0: Yeah, I think that that's fair. You know, I, I don't see he's hit that brick wall that uh, that Gasly uh, ended up uh, kind of headbutting uh, against. So, yeah, let's hope there's a corner to be turned fairly fairly shortly. Uh, and also, Scott, in in terms of the the top ten, Albon's slightly strange strategy, and then this this Ferrari Vettel one stopper and Leclerc retiring. They were actually the only real disruptors of that battle for the bottom half of the points. McLaren ended up getting to the front of that with Carlos Sainz in six. He finished out of Vettel. Uh, and of course, Sainz had been behind Albin in that first stint. Albin was eighth, Gasly ninth, Norris tenth. So McLaren, two cars in the points. And for Sainz, probably the sort of result he needed after what's actually been quite a difficult year and then a frustrating pair of Silverstone weekends, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, well, Yeah, it definitely wasn't just Silverstone that was frustrating. I think pretty much since the season opener, it's been there's been something hasn't there um bad pit stops bad luck in terms of pit stop timing and traffic this cooling problem that's blighted him last weekend at silverstone and then the first part of the barcelona weekend as well until they changed the engine so yeah, really pleased for signs obviously home race i thought he drove really well uh, he got opportunistic got ahead of albon when he could and then he uh he hounded vettel and managed to grab an extra place as well so given the colossally good weekend that racing point had, it wasn't quite enough for McLaren. I don't think to um, get back into third in the, uh, in the championship, but I think they did get back ahead of, uh, back ahead of Ferrari. I think they're a point ahead of Ferrari and a point behind racing, racing point. So it's quite good to see McLaren in that position. Uh, They got another double points finish, even though Lando Norris was only 10th. I think he lost ground on the opening lap, didn't he? Uh, But yeah, just for signs, just, Norris stole all of the headlines in the first couple of races, but Carlos has been really good, and um, this was just another a bit of a reminder after some really really unfortunate few races that this is the caliber of driver that Ferrari has signed for for next year.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Um, there's not really much to say about Gasly and Norris actually. in Ninth and tenth, they had uh, they had good uh, good decent races. Another strong weekend from uh, from Pierre Gasly. Uh, of course, he's he's had a, a decent season. Uh, but actually Norris did have a, a good little battle with Leclerc at one stage, that's worth uh, that's worth a mention. But then looking outside the points mark, Renault had a really difficult weekend, Ricardo was 11th, Ocon was 13th, Daddy Kvyat sandwiched in between them in his uh, traditional 12th place. Renault's performance really is erratic, isn't it? And every time you think there may be a corner's turned, you get to the next race and they've turned around another three corners and they're, they're back where they started. Uh Ocon's performances, though, I think are a concern on that. He's been complaining about power unit weakness. He's on a very aged power unit compared to uh, that of Ricardo. It's the speed trap figures, to some extent, supported that. But but, do you buy that for, for Ocon? What do you think is going on there? I think there's some
1: questions um, on both sides, questions about the car. Um, there was questions about why it was lacking in straight line speed a couple of races ago compared to the identically set up car of Daniel's. I don't know if they've got the bottom of that yet. So yeah, there is probably something worth looking at there, but I think he's just come in and discovered just what a megastar Daniel Ricciardo is. Uh, You know, and if you're coming into it cold after a year out of the car, that's not the easiest situation to be thrown into. Um, Yeah. In terms of Renault and its, its up and down form, it's, it, it seems quite a um, quite a fussy car in terms of it'll, it. It seems to work over quite a narrow band, and in that part of the grid, if you get a two tenth swing, you can go from you know sixth down to twelfth quite easily. And I think that's just about where they are. They're they're, they're not miles off the pace of those cars that were finishing fifth, sixth, seventh, but uh, just enough off that that that's it. They're out of the point.
0: Yeah, we know how good a, a driver Ocon is. He was getting a little bit of, uh, of hassle during qualifying to up the corner speed as well. So clearly there's a little bit there. And we should remember Ricardo struggled when he first went to Renault. His first half of last season was a little bit erratic by his standards. The second half started to get really, really strong for Ricardo. So we, we can cut Ocon a little bit of uh, slack, I think, there. But I did speak to Ocon after the race and asked him if, if he sees Spa as kind of that reset because he'll have the new power unit because that's just the schedule uh for it i think he's looking forward to just having a few days off and then you know try and go again and and use spa as a zero point for him and uh, hopefully be able to because we know how good a driver ocon can be uh what else do we have there's this very nice class c at the back which is Haas, alfa romeo and williams which is quite a good little battle actually we talked about class b in the past uh kimmy raikkonen was probably the star of that in the end this weekend. He. Uh, Managed to to take the uh, the class C pole, shall we say? He seemed to wake up in qualifying, in dry qualifying this year. He's not really looked that engaged. Also behind the wheel either. He's when you watch onboard, he's just a little bit not quite there. But you know, really good qualifying performance. He even thought he could have had a go at Q3 if he'd had any any softs left for uh, for use in Q2, and actually with the gap, it, it was possible. And then we had quite a good race with you know Magnussen. Got up to that front of that group, had his usual first uh, good good start, and then you know Russell was was in there. He had a really strong weekend, probably his best. That's probably his best race actually for Williams because it was just the most um, relevant one in terms of people he was racing against. And the Alpha Romeos came through at the end. Raikkonen on a bit of a charge, good little battle through turn one, two with uh, with Russell at one stage. So yeah, down the back, yeah. So he had Raikkonen fourteenth, Magnussen fifteenth, Giovinazzi sixteenth. Russell 17th, Latifi 18th, and Grosjean 19th. Grosjean had a had a spin and a little bit of wheel banging, banging with Giovinazzi. And it's funny, actually, because Grosjean's weekend started really well. Because on Friday, he was really quick. And he was thinking, yeah, Q3, here we come. And then, of course, Mark, come Saturday, he's complaining about understeer, and the car's completely different. And he's just on for a fairly mundane weekend. That's kind of microcosm of Romain Grosjean, isn't it?
1: Well, also of Haas. I mean, they don't seem to know why they're quick when they're quick and they don't know why they're slow when they're slow and they changed Grosjean's power unit um, over the um, Friday night and for some reason the car didn't handle anymore Um, so yeah in the race he was trying to do a ridiculously long um, stint on a set of softs and eventually there was no rubber left and he he spun and so yeah just really sort of Clinging on, really, to 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 just try and pull something out of a, a difficult, uncompetitive situation. That's
2: not very encouraging for Ferrari, is it? We know that whenever they put one of their twenty twenty engines in, the car goes slower. I didn't realise that putting a twenty twenty Ferrari engine in makes the car worse itself.
0: <laughs> I find that I find the house drivers quite funny because they they've got very very different demands from a car. They'll often disagree about whether there's an understeer problem or not. Grosjean's very sensitive to it. Magnussen often will say, no, it's not understood. It's great. So they've got these two drivers who just aren't actually that compatible. It's quite a funny little situation. may well be that that partnership uh, changes, shall we say, next year. But let's quickly look off track, Scott, because because the the big story ahead of the weekend, really, it was was breaking kind of as we got to the, the Thursday, was the fact that the FIA has written to all the teams, various things were, were talked about, but one of them is some kind of curb on engine modes, restrictions, the effect of which will be potentially to to limit the use of the, the qualifying party modes as they're known. So what do you know about that? What's actually happened? What's going to happen?
2: Yeah, so at the moment, no, no firm rule change, but what's happened is that the FIA has written to the teams to inform them of the intent to issue a technical directive ahead of the Belgian Grand Prix that will basically seek to normalize the use of uh, engine modes across qualifying and and the race. So the engine manufacturers have invested a great deal of money and time and effort into developing these ultra high performance modes, the, the party modes as Lewis Hamilton coined it at the start of 2018 and then promptly forgot that he coined the phrase and was then baffled for the next six months as to why people kept using the phrase party mode. Um, and basically, the, the, so the theory is that Mercedes has done a better job than the others in developing their peak qualifying mode for, for this year. How, whether that is ex- completely true and to what kind of advantage they've gained, uh, nobody really knows. Um, but what will happen is uh, there will be some, some un, as yet unknown way of enforcing it so that a team cannot... Play about with engine settings throughout qualifying and switch to a really crazy peak power mode for q3 for example, and then turn the engine right down for the race on on sunday the object uh, so um, supposedly the, the the logic is that the FAA needs to do this to make it easier to monitor these ultra complex power modes and make sure that everyone is adhering to the rules because these engines are so complicated. Uh, But it's obviously been interpreted uh, also as a means of pegging back Mercedes, which is so, so dominant in qualifying at the moment. Lewis Hamilton has said, certainly interpreted it to be a means of uh, holding them back. The interesting thing is that um, Mercedes argues, and I would be inclined to agree, that it's not going to hold them back. If it takes a tenth or two away from them in qualifying, maybe more, they're still going to be in front because they're so far ahead. And it just means they're going to redirect some some engine performance into the race because I don't know if Toto was sort of using these numbers as uh, a, just as an example or specifically from from what he's been told by the high performance powertrain guys. But he's basically saying that for every five laps of uh, qualifying mode use, uh, you, you you have so for every five laps you do in qualifying with the highest engine setting, you can get 20, 25 laps out of it in the race. So it's basically going to make it an engine that lasts longer, is able to be used um, slightly harder in in race trim. And the last thing F1 needs right now is a Mercedes that's a 10th or 2 slower in qualifying and a 10th or 2 quicker in the race. Because all that means is we're going to have an equally boring qualifying session that's just a fight between Hamilton and Bottas. And in the race, they're going to, Going to edge away. Part of me actually thinks that if this is a sort of thinly veiled attempt at hurting Mercedes, part of me kind of does hope it works in, in in Mercedes' favor and they actually dominate even more. Because I really don't like an in-season rule change like this. It's one thing to issue a technical directive that's designed to stop cheating, but an out-and-out like way of man- like managing the engines when this is something that people have worked very, very, very hard for. And to, to, to establish a performance gain in to then just wholesale, uh, have a wholesale change of how it works, I find that a step too far. So I would quite, I think it would be quite amusing in a sort of perverse sort of way if this ends up making Mercedes even more competitive.
1: Yeah, I think it's also going to have a potentially damaging effect on the racing as well, because if you've only got one mode that can be used, you're not going to see that situation where one driver's attacking, the other one's defending, and he's making the the guy in front use up his electrical energy so that eventually it's going to be spent at just the moment the other guy still got some and get some at the beginning of the straight. And so that's, you know, you, you, you take for marginal gain in in one area and not really justified in terms of uh, what to, of given of, of, of competitively, justified in, in in a sporting sense, um, you're, you're actually taking away the spectacle, you're taking away part of the spectacle in an area where it really um, it could do with all the help it can get. Well, in
0: Formula One, the law of unintended consequences is powerful, isn't it? It wouldn't be the first time that a rule change that was expected to make things more exciting would actually not have the desired effect in multiple areas and then everyone will go, what do we do that for? That was a bit stupid and then uh, hurriedly roll it back. So we'll see what happens. It still seems to be uncertain at the time of recording because they do actually have to issue a technical directive and no one's really sure of it, exactly what form it will take. So keep an eye on the race website. We'll have news of that when we know what's going on and we'll delve into that. And we've got plenty of, uh, of in-depth coverage of uh, the spanish grand prix mark uses race analysis of course will be up my driver ratings scott mitchell's as i always say i never really know what scott's going to do because he doesn't have a a set a set piece but he has no identity when it comes to what he's going to do at this stage but uh, i've got
2: no idea (laughs) just because it's a lucky dip i just start hammering the keyboard and see if it makes sense usually it doesn't but i just go with it
0: well, subs can sort it out. That's uh, that's uh, what you always say as a as a journalist. But yeah, there'll be plenty to read there. Gary Anderson will be uh, will be chipping in and probably complaining about the uh, the slowness of uh, of cars on uh, cool down laps. We didn't talk about that, but Ocon had kind of quite a good uh, crash. But that's a big unpopular topic with Gary.
2: I was going to ask what's that's what Gary writes about this week is basically what's Gary Anderson angry about at the moment?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, he's got he's got some very justified things to be angry about. That's uh, he's been banging on about that slow. Cooldown lap and preparation lap thing for a long time, and he's quite right too. Because one of these days, there's going to be quite a serious accident because the differences are really, really massive. But that's a discussion for another day. And of course, we will be back with uh, with a podcast uh, between now and Spa. We, we've had a. a, a Barrage of uh, of post race ones, but we can maybe take a slight step back and, and look at some of the wider trends we've seen this season. In that one, bring back V tens has just restarted as well. There's a Brazil ninety four one. Uh, we've got plenty of, uh, of of exciting stories to tell of the past in the the second series of that, and we'll all be cropping up at, on that at some time or another. But please do join us next week for more F one talk.